Oh, okay. <laughs> You're listening, listening to Hold That Thought from Arts and Sciences at Washington University in St. Louis. Thanks for listening to Hold That Thought. I'm Claire Navarro. It's been more than a month since African-American teenager Michael Brown was shot and killed in Ferguson, Missouri. As you know, Brown's death led to dramatic protests and unrest. While the streets of Ferguson have somewhat quieted in recent weeks, everything that has happened is still very much on our minds and in the news. The Department of Justice will be conducting a civil rights investigation into the Ferguson Police Department. And just earlier this week, the Senate held a hearing on the militarization of local police enforcement. Here at Washington University in St. Louis, Rebecca Wanzo, Associate Professor of Women, Gender, and Sexuality Studies, and Associate Director of the Center for the Humanities, recently moderated a panel discussion called Race, Place, and Violence, a university-wide dialogue about Michael Brown. She joined Hold That Thought to talk about Ferguson and to help us tackle questions about whose suffering matters and why. I think it's hard when you look at the data to really make an argument that African-Americans are not receiving disparate treatment. It seems fairly clear that Black, poor citizens are being victimized by the state. Wanzo is talking in part here about reporting by the Washington Post, which showed how municipalities in St. Louis depend on revenue from tickets, fines, and fees, leveled mainly at lower-income African Americans, who often feel harassed by police. According to Wanzo, it's important to recognize this type of victimization, even though people don't necessarily like being considered victims. One of the things I always like to remind people is that there is a category, or there are various categories under law, where being a victim counts. And um, we actually have a lot of context in which it's important to be able to claim a status of victimization to receive things. And the fact that we are reluctant to do that can be a problem, right? Because I think it's about a discomfort with the ways in which people suffer. And this isn't just true for people who experience discrimination based on race or class. According to Wanzo, these types of claims have been important to people of all political parties and really across time periods. When I listen to Tea Party discourse, and and really if you go back to revolutionary discourse, part of their claims was about how they were victims under oppression, right? That was a language that's sort of foundational, actually, to how we make claims about um, the need for revolutionary change or political change, legal change. So in order to change a situation for the better, first we have to acknowledge when victimization is happening and also that it can happen to anyone. Lots of people at various points in their lives end up needing help as victims, right? Um, it could be, you could be a victim from a natural disaster, you could be a victim of an unequal education system, you could be a victim of the state. So the question we always have to think about is, when does the victimization count and when doesn't it? That question brings us to Michael Brown. The details of Brown's death are still under investigation. Earlier this week, Brown's family publicly called for the arrest of Darren Wilson, the white police officer who killed their son. Wilson has since been on administrative leave. 
So clearly for large groups of people, Michael Brown is seen as a victim and one whose victimization counts in a major way. But as Wanzo will explain, that's not true for everyone. He definitely serves as someone who mobilizes um, a population that's very concerned about excessive state violence or police brutality. Uh, but at the same time, he's not visible or important or iconographic to people um, who would prefer to privilege other kinds of citizens or victims and who wouldn't see him as a victim at all. In her book, The Suffering Will Not Be Televised, Wanzo asks these types of questions about whose suffering counts and why. Her interest in this type of question has led her to pay close attention to the many types of public reactions to Michael Brown. Many people have resisted calling Brown a victim or expressing sympathy for him. And part of the reason for that may have to do with race and American history. Uh, Sadia Hartman, in a book about slavery and, and spectacle and subjection argued that there's a way in which the spectacular nature of black suffering can provide a kind of pleasure and people are used to it. So the kind of constancy of, sort of violence against black people or black suffering can also lessen sympathy. This lack of sympathy is particularly important in cases like Brown's, in which the tragedy has the potential to ignite social change. You're really hard-pressed to think of any social movement that hasn't depended on representing suffering people and trying to get people to feel for that suffering person. But clearly, for many people in Ferguson and now across the world, Michael Brown does deserve sympathy, and he does deserve to be looked at as a victim. According to Wanzo, part of the reason for this has to do with not only the circumstances of his death, but also with the people that he left behind. You know, one of the things I think we can think about if we look at Michael Brown, one of the classic sentimental representations is the, the mother, right? And the mother who loses her child, who longs for her child. And a number of people have said to me when they think about the funeral and, you know, became this very big public political spectacle. But, you know, there was this, also this very private, intimate thing that was happening that the family had to bury their son. But for a lot of people, it um, was entirely appropriate or understandable that she um, made it very public because it referenced for them um, Emmett Teal's murder and when his mother opened up the opened up the casket and wanted people to see and said, you know, so the whole world can see, basically. She wanted the whole world to see what had been done to her son. Of course, there are problems with approaching victimhood in this way. In Wanzo's work, she has come across stories of victimization that she believes could and should have led to social change, but that didn't happen. Part of the problem was that these victims didn't have mothers to be sad and outraged. Or perhaps the mothers themselves weren't sympathetic figures. So now we once again arrive at the question, whose suffering matters and why? For some people, the Ferguson Police Department's decision to release footage of Brown allegedly shoplifting before his confrontation with Darren Wilson was an attempt to sway public opinion on that question. You know, I can't speculate on the police department's motivation. Um, you know, I don't know what it was. Um, or perhaps I will not speculate uh, on tape. But what I will say is that certainly people experienced it as an attempt to make him someone who could not be rallied around. Motivations of the police force aside, like much of the press and the Ferguson community, 
Wanzo believes that the details of Michael Brown's life and actions shouldn't be the focus here. Nothing should deflect from the question of whether or not we think the policies that lead to these deaths um, and lead to, I think a number of people believe, too many armed deaths. Nothing should deflect attention from that question. So that's, that's I think, is, is really what's at stake. Over the past month, Wanzo has paid close attention to media outlets, including social media. And while for all of us, these were great places to get news and updates about the situation, they also revealed some disturbing reactions. I think that one of the things we have to really be attentive to is that we live in a culture where we have these sort of online spaces that make really visible um, some extraordinarily serious, old-fashioned, racist frameworks that um, people would like to say don't exist in post-race culture. So if you call people animals, right, if you say that people behave as if they're in a jungle or and this is black people, right, if you're doing that and we see a lot of it, um, if we see a complete unwillingness to understand why people experience these shootings and then how often these shootings happen, unarmed, the shooting of unarmed African-American men as discriminatory, we have a serious cultural problem that's not on the outskirts. It's really at the center of us still trying to struggle with what it means to allegedly be in the post-civil rights era, because we're not post in the sense that we still understand that there's structural inequalities that exist. So... I think what we see in what happened has happened in Ferguson is a portrait of continued structural inequality. And it's the kind of portrait that's not new. We see it all the time. But I think the protesters have really forced people to look at it, right, by not going away and being so large in number. And... Um, and social media as well, and just the insistence that people will keep talking about it. As time goes on, the questions and conversations about Ferguson will continue to evolve. Today, Professor Wanzo and many of us are asking, what happens now? So one of the questions I'm always interested in is how long does it actually take to produce structural equality, right? Was it five years? 10 years, 20, 50, 100? That, I think, is really the question at stake, right? How long does it take? Um, I think some people think it's been long enough. It's done. Um, Other people think, well, there was all this other retrenchment and there are all these things still happening. We're still struggling with it, that formal equality still doesn't exist. And that conflict is really the conflict that's going to be carrying us through the 21st century. Many thanks to Rebecca Wanzo for contributing to Hold That Thought. You can find a link to her faculty page on our website, thought.wustl.edu.